We're continuing where we left off with uh, Thought of the Week in Prayer. And we will, um, it, oh, today is again, it's 8-16-2020. And uh, we're going to have Dave uh, take care of our Thought of the Week in Prayer. My Thought of the Week. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. The, the phrase, God is not finished with me yet, is a popular expression of our day often found on t-shirts as a slogan. It describes how none of us was to say we are perfect. We are all flawed and have a long way to go. Well, it is not us who determine if things are finished. It is God. He would know when we are done and that we will be determined by what he wants from us, from his master plan. The fact that we are being built together to become something that you're the process of building, we are not in the goal of what we will become. I hope that makes sense. God will finish the project, and we will be what he wants us to be. I say this because we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. We don't want to be stopping short of God's expectations by continuing to draw the conclusion from what the building process, for the building process. We have to see things from God's perspective. The fact we have been predestined to say that we are being fitted for God. I like the way the apostle says it here, and you are Christ and a God. Take it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 23. So the way I look at this sort of the week is that the Lord is determining of how Hollywood is, is building me and boy, using us as the building. He's the builder. We are the building about how he wants to be formed in his image of his son. But this is his plan, not our plan. So when it comes to saying that, we are being built together, meaning that the whole body is being built together in unity with Christ. So that's what I've been saying that it's become a holy temple in the Lord, because we are the temple in the moment that we believe in Christ. So our body is now what God expected us and form us to be. So I'm looking at this and taking it from us as the order of the week. And you are Christ and Christ is a God. Take it from First Corinthians chapter two verse twenty-three. So at this time we're gonna take this to prayer. Do anyone have any special prayer requests that's all their hearts that we take to the throne of grace? Yeah, this is uh this prayer for our local church and the church universal. Okay. So at this time we'd like to take this to prayer to the throne of grace. The my family. Okay. Okay. Anyone else? Everyone, please bow your heads. 
activity. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that you give us the opportunity to come together, united as a church, Father, to be lifting you up, Lord. So, Father, we ask you to look to our families, look at, look at the church for others. Look at our Bill Myers family, look at my family, the past family as well, and those who might still be on the road, Father. We ask you as a universal church, Father, that you are look for those who are unsaved and are looking for that blessed hope. Father, we ask you, the Lord, to protect us while we are in this world, Father. While we are a pilgrimage here, Father, walking, we ask you to look over us and protect us, Father. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen our family, our children. We ask you to pray for those who, who may be receiving the message of salvation, but yet has not made that one determination to believe in your son, Lord. But Father, as we continue this church service, Father, we ask you to keep our hearts, our minds open in prayer, Father. We all ask you, Lord, to ask you as you give us forth the message, Father, so we can still grow in grace and in the knowledge of us, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ask you, Father, in, in, his, in his name, in Christ's name, amen. 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 Thank you, Dave. Appreciate your handling. And uh, so we are going to forge right ahead into our verse, which is John chapter 14 and 30. Hopefully you all should have notes and we can proceed. In your notes, as our Lord unfolds and introduces the new church age to come, he is also keenly aware of where he is at the time of speaking these words. He knows that soon he will be heading to the cross. He cannot reveal all the information he has, but when the spirit of truth comes, they will learn from his mind. The prince of this world has been closely watching Jesus throughout his ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, he tried to tempt Jesus, but failed found in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He will continue to try to defeat our Lord, but he will be defeated again. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So that's Colossians 2 and 15, which states that Jesus defeated Satan and all his evil at angels. So, we know uh, Jesus says he has much more. Uh, he will not say much more. He's not going to continue with a long discourse, but he will um, he will get ready for this big event that is happening in his life. So, let's look at this. Let's break it down. Uh, we'll take take three phrases from this. The first one is, I will not say much more to you. Jesus could not fully disclose the church age. This is the first part. But he continues to teach in John chapters 15 through 17. Now we'll get to this where um, Jesus makes the point that he's, come on, let's, let's go. You know, but he doesn't go yet. And he, he has two more chapters. When he says, I, have, I will not say much more to you, 
he's saying that the little, the little more that he will tell them is found in John chapter 15 uh, through chapter 17. So three more chapters he talks, but he doesn't consider that much more. So I, I guess we're saying the negative, but hopefully you understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm, uh, I'm going to leave. And he's about getting ready. He, he's about getting ready to leave. He's not uh, leaving at this moment. Because as you know, he continues to teach for three more chapters. So now, of course, for us, if you were to read those three chapters, it could be done in a matter of minutes. Not hours, minutes. You could literally read through chapters 15, 16, and 17. But for uh, us to study what Jesus said, and we know God's words are pregnant with meaning, and when he speaks to us, it not only spoke to the disciples, but we can grow spiritually by examining and dwelling and diligently seeking him through his word. So we take our time, and as we look at that, it unfolds to us. So we're not going to go through John chapter 15 through 17 in minutes. I would say it's going to be months before it's over. So we will take our time. So I don't want, but as far as Jesus' timeline is concerned, he's getting ready to go. He's headed to the cross. He knows it. But he will not go to the cross. And we'll talk more about this next week until he gets to chapter 18. After the prayer, he says, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So we know that is when Jesus actually left, even though uh, he says it here. And we'll, we'll talk more about this next week, and, you know, where it actually says, come now, let us leave. But for now... He is not going to continue to go on and on and on because there's some things that are getting ready to happen. And he has much, a lot still to tell him, but uh, he will withhold most of it. So, <clears throat> point, the next thought here is, it reminds me of what he said in chapter 16, in verse 12, where he says, I have much more to say to you more than you can now bear. So, it reminds me of that because Jesus is saying in that verse that this information that I have to tell you, you don't have the capacity for. You will get the capacity when the Comforter or the Spirit of Truth comes, but right now you don't have the capacity to be able to understand all that I'm getting ready, you know, I'm going to say. Now, he's taught a lot there was a lot more to be taught. So this is what he meant by a much more. Not just more, but much more to say. So whatever he says in John chapters 13 through 17, or even we can even go back to 12, 12 through 17, he's, he has much more to tell them about the dynamics of this new age and the spiritual life that we would have uh, as a result of this age and the coming of the Spirit. So uh, when 
imagine having all of that much more to tell us. I'm excited about it. I really am when I think about what he said. And uh, there's so much when we look at those chapters. It reminds me of uh, what he says in 16. Let's go to 16. Is in our notes here. Verse 12. That's the one. I have much more. And then we'll also look at um, 1 Corinthians 3, which you should be all familiar with. We've talked about it. We haven't talked about it in that much detail. detail verses 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as those who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. Now, worldly, carnal, fleshly. Um, when he says he could not address them as uh, spiritual, meaning those who lived by the Spirit or depended on the Spirit's ministry, which is to teach them the deeper things of God. So verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So the Corinthians had a problem. They were, their growth even though I think Paul expects that they should have grown, they had not. And it showed. I mean, Paul understood where they were. Now, Paul wasn't God, but Paul could see through his teaching that they were not receptive for him to be able to go further because of the situation that existed in the church. Uh, people were not focused on scripture and learning the deep things of God and having that as their conversation and, and part of their experience. They were focused on arguing and fighting and strife. He says, you are still worldly, verse 3, since there is quarreling among you. Are you not worldly, worldly and acting like mere humans? In other words, just people who are unsaved and they don't have the guidance of the Spirit. They are acting according to their former nature, which you know, would be given to all of those things. And then he describes what kind of uh, skirmishes were going on. Verse 4, when I, one says, I'm, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? In other words, aren't you? He knows they're in Christ, but he's saying the way they conduct themselves is like unbelievers, basically. And we know there's no, no question that we know believers can and do act as unbelievers at times. And we, this is something we, we have to see as Paul uh, helping the Corinthians out of the dilemma they're in. Because once they get in this, it's sticky. They may not even realize they're out of fellowship or out of step with God and out of step with the Spirit. They may think, oh, this is, you know, we're vying for our, you know, our uh, division or our dispensation, not dispensation, we're vying for our person. And one follows Paul, another Apollos, another Cephas, right? Uh, they, they're just vying for their minister as though he were, uh, if you don't follow Paul, then you're not really getting it. If you don't follow Apollos, you're not getting what 
you know, Apollos is a mighty speaker and you're not getting what he, you know, and, and they were fighting amongst themselves. Imagine that. When it comes to the word, it is not about eloquence of speech, as Paul said in two, which he starts out saying, which to me uh, is important, where he says, and I, it, this is 1 Corinthians 2, 1, and so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. So Paul is saying that it's, not, it's really about the message. It's really about the testimony of God. It really does not have anything to do with uh, Paul's, you know, understanding and eloquence and command of the the language and all of these things. Or how he delivers it, and you know, people are very concerned about the delivery and the impact, the emotions, and all these things when they speak. None of that is important, and you know, I years ago when I was a young lad, we'll call myself a young lad. I was probably in my late twenties, and I went to college theological school and uh, I was in school with all these budding ministers even though I was a bit older than they were I was probably 25 26 27 when I went to college maybe and they were more like 18 19 20 you know so there was some advantage uh, probably of life wisdom that I had over them but one thing was for sure those budding ministers would go in the mirror and, you know, they would practice how, how they would give speeches. They would look in the mirror and, you know, some would figure out how they could move audiences and they would work on their delivery and all of that. And I honestly never paid attention to how I would deliver a message. Never thought about it that way. I always thought about the content of the message. And my thought was, if I were to get emotional or excited about it, it wouldn't be because I wanted to move the audience. It would be because of what I'm talking about is moving me. And so whatever excitement that I had would be literally about the message. So I, 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 I felt that early on, and I never really thought about the delivery of how I'm going to sound, or, and I hate the way I sound on tape, in fact. And I don't consider myself an eloquent speaker or somebody who's trained in how to speak. I honestly do not. I don't, in fact, I don't even think I'm a good speaker. I, I remember one of the things I wrote in, in one of the papers I was writing, and I said, just hang on, please don't go away. I, I may ramble on at times, but I think I do have something to say. There is a message. And I, don't, I may not be as direct in you know, giving it. And it may be around the bin, but I'm focused on the message, and hopefully that's what comes through in, in our you know, meetings together. So, just to note, um, that is part of how I see things when it comes to this. And I would think that 
Christ was probably an excellent teacher. And I would have loved to sit under his feet, uh, at his feet, to just take in what he has to say. And I appreciate it even more now that the Spirit has come. And he is able to not only take his words and, and to help me understand the import of what they really do mean according to the Father's plan. And that's exactly what he's done for all of us, the spirit of truth. So it's important. So let's keep going because we won't have that much time. Point number C in our notes, 1C. Jesus was working on a strict timeline or a time schedule according to the Father's plan. The disciples were not aware of this plan. They, they weren't thinking in the same way. I mean, they could have been settling in for a long discourse. And Christ was, you know, he was probably reading their posture. And he's saying, I got a lot more I could say to you, but uh, I'm not going to talk much more now. So uh, there's a couple of verses when I think about how the, Jesus was so aware of the plan and the time uh, or, or what he you know, needed to accomplish according to a time schedule where the disciples had no clue. Imagine that. Uh, Jesus, many times, and I'm thinking of the time they were going up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and they said, well, you are running around talking about you're the Messiah. Now, the disciples may not have said this, but you're running around talking about you're the Messiah. If they're having this Feast of Tabernacles, you should be headed up there right now. And Jesus said to them, uh, you know, my time is not the same time as your time. Something like that. So, but he, so he let them go, but later he did come to the Feast, Feast of Tabernacles. So Christ was operating according to a different schedule than they were. The disciples didn't know all of that. They, they weren't really thinking about the fact that Jesus uh, was not focused on time the way they were. So I got a couple of scriptures that do bring it out. Just There's more, but I got a couple. Um, verse, John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. So this is, again, uh, we, we've talked about this from our, our time where Jesus... Uh, kind of started contemplating the future. He's really starting to focus in now on what's going to happen after he dies. Uh, prior to this, he says, Very truly, I tell you, if a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So he, he's really talking about his motivation and what he's getting ready to what's in front of him. So... Uh, Notice, he's very conscious of what time it is. I mean, is, he doesn't think it's a year from now. He understands how close things are getting. The disciples have no clue. They're walking around uh, with no clue about what the time schedule is. So then there's another one. Uh, let's go to chapter 16. There's several here. And I just picked out a few. 16.4, I have told you this so that when they're time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So notice Jesus is 
kind of setting the stage. He's telling them a lot that he didn't tell them before. Why? Because he's going away. And they need to know key information. I've told you this so that when their time comes, uh, you will remember that I warned you. So uh, about them, he's talking about these evil people who will put them out of the synagogue. In fact, they will even seek to kill them. They will know. They will have a heads up in their mind. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you and I was going to protect you from all this anyway. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. But now when I leave, these things are going to start to happen. And, and now you remember when these things occur. So, and then uh, verse 21, look at verse 21. So he says, a woman given birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets about, uh, forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, he gives this analogy about a woman giving birth. And, you know, a woman giving birth is definitely about timing, right? So, even though we don't know the timing, oh, it surely is about timing. And I can tell you, when a woman is ready to give birth, then she's ready to give birth. When that baby's coming, that baby's coming. There's no, well, can we schedule it for next week? No, no, it's, when that, it's time, it's time. So Jesus uses that analogy in verse 21. But then he says in verse 22, so with you. In other words, this, this is like it. It's going to happen with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. So, but notice it's going to have to do with timing. It won't be, you know, you're going to have to wait through it. First, it's going to be the grief. I'm going away, you know, all that. But then later, you know, you're going to understand and you will rejoice. It's just like a woman in birth. And he, he used that analogy. And then in verse 32, let's look at verse 32. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me alone, all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Imagine, uh, Jesus is telling them these things in preparation for him to leave. Now, if Jesus didn't tell them he was leaving, they wouldn't even know that. They would just go on as though uh, Christ would just ascend to uh, the kingship of and ruling over Rome and all the things and he, according to their plan, which, but they didn't know the Father's plan. So Jesus is telling them, yeah, you will be scattered. And imagine that. These people have left homes and businesses and families and all of that. And he's saying to them, they're going to be scattered. They're going to each to his own home. They're going to run away from me. And there's going to be a time for that. But they will come together. They would not be permanent. They will, they will be disoriented. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is talking about that time schedule. That's according to the Father's plan. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and as, as we said last week, he says, I, to I have told you these, I have told you now before it happens. So when it does happen, you will have a little bit a little bit of confidence. You will believe. Let's keep moving. We've got a lot of things to cover here in this one small verse. Point number two, 
for a time, it says, I will not say much more to you. Point number two is, for the prince of this world is coming. So, first thought is, Satan is the prince of this world. And we got a lot of scriptures to go through. I'll be moving pretty quickly. So if you can stay up with me, that's good. Satan is the prince of this world. We, we're already in John, so let's look at John 16, 11. 16, 11, actually, we could probably start reading at 8 through 11. Let's read it. When he comes, this is 8, he's talking about the spirit, that is. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So that's interesting to note that the prince of this world now stands condemned. But he is calling Satan the prince of this world. He is acknowledging that Satan is the ruler of this world, but he is a condemned ruler. Now, he's not, Christ didn't actually finish the work, but he anticipates that he will finish the work. He sees what's going to happen. He sees that he's going to go to the cross, and he's going to have to endure the sins of the world. He's going to be that lamb of God, and he's going to have to uh, receive the punishment for our sins. And, and through it all, he realizes that Satan, as it says in verse 11, is stands condemned. I would say he stood condemned as soon as Christ showed up in the world. Then he's the new ruler. And obviously, God knew he was going to be condemned from eternity past, right? It wasn't in the plan for Satan to win. He couldn't win, and he couldn't defeat God and, and over all the wisdom that God has. So, the prince of this world is coming, and Satan is that prince. Let's look at a couple thoughts. In uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it talks about, and you should know, this is important to know, that Satan has and still does have uh, influence over this world. Even though he stands condemned, and we'll find later how the end of Satan, how he is actually taken off the earth. And Christ comes and takes him off the throne, and then Christ begins his rule of this world. But as it stands, what we find is Satan now still has power. In Ephesians, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and the first three verses. As for you, you were dead in your transgression and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Look at this. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Here he calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, interesting, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, he's at work in us who are in Christ. But notice, there's a spirit of disobedience working in those who uh, are under Satan's control in this world. Unbelievers. Now this is dangerous to, and I talk about it that way, but 
you should know when Jesus was in this world, he had to contend with Satan as well. We already talked about in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, where he was tested by Satan, the devil. He was called there. He was tempted by the devil. And uh, that was a story in and of itself for us to behold. We could not know that information because there was no one out there recording except for God who was there and saw and gave us the record of what happened. So in this, remember, Satan has power over people who are unbelievers. So you should know that. Now that's scary, isn't it? When you think about the unbelievers in your life and what type of access and influence they have over you, you may want to consider that. What type of access unbelievers have over what you do and your thinking? It's here it is. Let me read it again. In which, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And look at this, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Satan has influence over unbelievers in this world. So when you think about that, you really need to consider about the fact that we're in a battle. And it's important. Let's continue to read. Verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time. So there's no difference between us and those. God didn't shield us from the influence of Satan and from the wrath of God. right? We, we were in that. So it says... We were at like them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So when it says that we were deserving of wrath, and all of this was by nature, the nature that we had is patterned after Satan's rebellion and disobedience. So we know that's why where it says the sin nature can never submit to the law. It can ne never submit to the law it, and will never. It's because it is uh, abhorrent. It is opposed. It is patterned after Satan's rebellious nature. It would never submit to the law. So it's important that we see these things. I mean, I, I want to really say beware of these things. Because it's important for us to know how Satan may try to attack us and what the ground of his, his powers are. And it makes for good sense to understand the enemy here. So here uh, says, there's, there's another verse just to note. There's um, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, let's go there. Four, three and four. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, veiled means hidden, right? It, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So how, why would that be? Is it their free will or what? Verse four, the God of this age. And again, another term for Satan, the God or ruler of this age, <coughs> has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Notice, 
of unbelievers. He didn't blind the mind of believers because once a believer believes, <laughs> they they see. They, they, they're not blind. They have seen Christ and, and their eyes are open. But unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, there's another thing to point out in verse 4. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. So these people are unbelievers. Unbelievers are not just, well, that's what they are. Unbelievers are understanding that they made a choice in the matter. You're either a believer or an unbeliever. Well, if you are an unbeliever, that means you've resisted God. And guess who bolsters and continues to keep you in blindness in that unbelief? It is Satan. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. So not only do they not believe, but his spirit of unbelief becomes a part of their thinking so that they cannot even see. It doesn't even make sense to them, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. They cannot even see it. It doesn't make, they, for them it's not even logical to think of it that way. So it's important to see the work of Satan and how he is busy in this world. And it's important. So when Jesus said the prince of this world is coming, he recognized who that was. He had already known that Satan was uh, on the case when when his ministry uh, was, when he was here, uh, executing the ministry that God had him to execute, the plan. Point B in our notes, 2B. Coming. Satan would attempt to defeat Christ with a series of major attacks, beginning with his arrest in the garden. So when, when we think about Satan and his influence over people and and, and how he influences us through the nature, the sin, the rebellious nature that each of us had when we were in Adam. So that is our experience. He has a way in, doesn't he, right, to, to our temptation. But uh, Christ, so he, he was, Christ is saying, Prince of this world is coming. He was, was trying to say that Satan's getting ready to ramp up major attacks on him. He knew that as he left and went to the garden, Satan had motivated Judas, which it says earlier, uh, it says when Satan had entered him, right, uh, meaning Satan was influencing Judas. Who was Judas? Judas is an unbeliever. And uh, so I could turn to that, and I didn't actually include it in the notes, but uh, why don't I try to turn to it here? So it says, um, I think it's around 30-something. Yes. So, yeah, so it's verse 27. Uh, John thirteen twenty-seven is the actual verse. So he says, uh, let's look at 26. Jesus answered. This is after he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, who is it? Is it me? Is it you? No, who is it? So Jesus says in verse 26, it is the one to whom I will give the piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, 
Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to go buy, to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. So we know that. But notice what it says. Satan entered into him. So just understand as we, when we talk about how Satan can gain advantage, right? How he influences those people who uh, are still in the kingdom of darkness are under the prince of darkness, the, the prince of this world, the god of this age. They're still under his power. We need to make sure we recognize that so we realize who is friend and who is enemy in this world. Now, we, we, we recognize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we should know that flesh and blood often is used by Satan as pawns. Now, we don't, you know, get mad at the people who are caught in the snare of the devil. But what we do is we recognize that and we realize that Satan could be tempting us or through them. You know, he could be testing us, tempting us to sin. So just be aware. Just I, I can't say this enough because it's important. Jesus was getting ready to go through many battles, and Satan was right there instigating all of them. Imagine when they were in that courtyard, and they told Pilate. You know, Pilate had beat Jesus. And he figured, well, I can't find any problem with this man. There's no problem that he has committed after Jesus stood there all beaten and bloodied already from the temple guards. And uh, he says, I, I don't find any fault with him. But then he beat him. He allowed him to be whipped. And then he brought him out again. And he tried to release him. And you know what they said? Crucify him. They want him dead. We don't, whipping him is not enough. We want him dead. Who do you think was in there inspiring that? I would say Satan was very busy at the time, influencing them. And this also goes into the scripture in John 15, where, and I'm just be bringing all these scriptures out, <laughs> just bear with me here. This also goes into John 15, where he talks about at the end, uh, he says, um, verse, you know, and these are the classic ones that talks about whoever hates me hates my father. Don't work, don't be surprised if they hated you because the world hated me. It's about me. So uh, look at this, John fifteen twenty five. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. So without reason, look, it wasn't even logical what they were doing they're in their hatred because when it says without reason without cause because they didn't really have a reason it was instigated motivated through satan that they hated him so it was bigger than they were they were you know he did this with the law and he we paul says you know i don't care anything about your laws they're not important to me did this man commit anything worthy of death? And the answer is no, he didn't. 
but they hated him without cause, which means that the, the anger and the fuel of their hatred came from some other source, and it was Satan. And he was able to prevail over them. Crucify him, crucify him. And even down to the point where Pilate was like, look, this man, I am not going to be responsible for this man's death. You know what they said? Let his blood be on us and our children. Wow, I couldn't even think. Imagine that, that they were going to expose not only them, but their families, their children, their loved ones. Let his death be on us and our children. Imagine that. So this is why I say it is a dangerous scenario that we're in the world. We need to know we're in enemy territory. This is not this is hostile ground that we are on. Point C. We should be on guard as well. That's the point. Ephesians 6, let's look at it. 10 through 13. Ephesians 6. So all this because Christ realized who he was, Satan, and he's on his way to bring about these calamitous events that are about ready to happen. So in Ephesians chapter, where are we here? Ephesians chapter, there it is. There we go. All right, stand by. Yeah. Okay, so six. So, here, ten. So he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So it's important. The devil's busy. He has a plan and his plan is that you fail. Right? So, but notice, we're putting on the full armor of God. We're, we're standing in his mighty power so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not fl against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in, heaven, in the heavenly realms. That's where our fight really is. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, and he goes into stand firm then with the belt of truth and so forth. So, But notice, there's the day of evil, when the day of evil comes. So when that day of evil comes is when Satan throws things at you as well just like he was getting ready to have this mass these massive attacks with the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ says I'm getting ready for this I know it's coming I gotta be ready Satan's coming he's gonna throw everything he can at me but notice these things can also happen in your life we're, we're never going to the cross to pay for our sin or the sins of the world none of that's happening for us but there's going to be battles here on this earth, the battleground, and you will be called to fight. So this is what he's talking about. When that time comes, stand, therefore, with all of these. This is how you do it, the belt of truth and all that, right? That's how you stand. 
not in a way that is, uh, you know, uh, where you, you think you're standing. You have to stand in the power of God. That's important. That day, those battles will come. So when, when he said he's coming, notice Satan's going to come with a barrage of attacks against Christ. And it would, these attacks would begin with his arrest in the garden. And that would be the key that tips off everything else from there. Satan is heavily involved. And just the point, our, our, the, the point where we are is see is that these things can also happen for us. Second Corinthians is another verse that talks about the battle that we face in this world. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And we've covered this. So three through five. Look, get this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. This is interesting. We had this conversation last week where we talked about the military and all this stuff, about fighting in the military and so forth. But notice this verse is very clear. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Uh, we do have weapons, and we're in a battle. Right? Is, so we could use military analogies, but watch this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice that is in perfect keeping with what Paul said in Ephesians. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but it is against principalities and powers and this and that, right? is demolish strongholds. Now notice, we don't have equal power that Satan has. We can demolish strongholds because we have the wisdom of God. For we, And then verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension. In, either, in other words, even if they look like they're coming our way, <laughs> even if it almost, you, you, the attack seems to be focused on us, we can demolish it. It says every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And this is part of, obviously, our warfare. This is what it looks like. It's not getting in the trenches and foxholes and all the things and killing the enemy. It is this which is fought on a much higher plane. Remember, all those things that are happening on the earth, and this is the world of Satan, right? He is in control. All those things in wars and rumors of wars and all that, that's happening on the ground. But those wars and rumors of wars are inspired by something greater, something we don't see. It's just like at the cross, we saw a man get crucified. Well, Satan was busy. Demonic powers were influencing the, what was going on. All that behind-the-scenes work that was going on with Satan and motivating people and Judas and others to crucify Christ and to defeat him and get him to sin and, and lose confidence in the Father. Well, those, those are the battles that we are in with those types of, of forces, those spiritual forces, those demonic forces that are in heavenly realms. That is what inspires what's going on down here in the, what we call the devil's world. So we're not part of this world, but we're in it. 
we're in it for a purpose. And we, that's what we need to recognize and make sure we're aware of our purpose in this world. And it's scary when you think about it, but it's not scary when, you have, when you're strong in the Lord and have the ability to fight. Let's go to 1 John 5.19, another verse, as we think about it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world is under the control of Satan. When you think about that thought, it's kind of scary to think that, yeah, we're the only ones who are not under the control of Satan. Now, of course, we could yield ourselves to the control of Satan, but technically, we belong to God. We don't belong to Satan. This is, if the world hates you, it's because it hated me, Christ said. So you, you have to look at this verse. When we talk about uh, the church universal. They're, listen, we have no other allies in this world because those people in the world could be compromised. Those people in the world are unbelievers. And because of that, Satan has direct influence into their lives. He can blind them to keep them as unbelievers, keep the smokescreen going. And it is our objective to go out and to preach the gospel to those who are lost. And this tells us that the only, we and the other believers that are here in the world are our brothers and sisters. The whole world is under the control of the evil one, Satan. He has influence in this world. And we need to recognize that as we are out here trying to save souls. We are not trying to save this world. This world will be destroyed. So this is further evidence to note that these things are so. And what our position is in this world. And how important it is. Because we're only here for a short time when we think about it. So let's keep going. I know I have uh, digressed quite a lot here. Point D, Satan is defeated as the prince of this world. He's defeated. We should know that Christ defeated him. Colossians 2.15 tells us that. We read that earlier where it says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's Colossians 2.15. It says, clearly stated, that Satan is defeated. He is a defeated foe. And also, um, um, what do we have? John 12, 31 and 32. I'll get to that real quick. John 12, 31 and 32. says, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So there will be the Holy Spirit coming into the world to draw all people to himself. That's after Christ's crucifixion, which he's already saying that Satan will be driven out as ruler of this world. Now we should, we should note also um, 16, 11, which we already said, says that the, uh, Satan is, you know, he is already condemned. It says, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. 
prince of this world, Satan. He's already been judged. You know, handwriting's on the wall for him. And Christ, the new ruler, is already, uh, it says, and the word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us here in the world. So we, we're aware of that. And then there's Luke. Um, let's see. Oh, and then there's six. There's Luke 10. How about Luke? Well, let's look at Luke 10 and 18. Let's see what that one has to add to what we're talking about. 18. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So Christ is predicting and he's showing Satan's demise. And then Revelation 20 through 23. Revelation 20, uh, verses um, 1 through 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding his hand in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it, locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So, what we ought to know is: look at Satan deceives the nations. Notice he has influence over the world. Be careful about what we invest in this world, because we know it's only temporary. We know we can use the things of this world, but we're not to be uh, engrossed in them. So it's important to note. And then this last one. So the text goes like this. It says, uh, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming, and he has no hold over me. Let's look at the four points there. So the first one's literally, <coughs> it says... He has nothing, or not one thing, uh, according to the Greek. No influence at all in me. So when we think about that, Christ remained, and point number two is Christ remained impeccable. The impeccable, spotless Lamb of God. Uh, and there's, so he never sinned, he never gave in to the, he didn't have a nature of sin like we are born with. And he never sinned even once. There's two testimonies we can find. One is John 1.29. This is John the Baptist, right? Uh, speaking of when Christ was coming to be baptized with by him. This is what he said in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John recognized who Jesus was. And he called him the Lamb of God. And we know lambs had to be spotless. They couldn't be defective in ways, in any way, if they were going to be offered as a sacrifice to God. This is Old Testament understanding. But Christ, in his offering himself, and as we read in Hebrews, how he offered his body and so forth. And we understand, Peter says later, uh, he, he says he bore our sins in his own body on the cross. 
So we can understand how Christ was impeccable and spotless before God. And he had to make it to the cross to be that offering. Not just that he was at that particular time, but that he lived his life on the earth and made it to the cross. And when he got to the cross and through the cross, he had to be the, the lamb of God for us. Otherwise, we would not have uh, any satisfaction for our sins in him. So in 1 Peter 2.22, there's also Peter's estimation of it. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin. This is Peter. Uh, his, and he closely was with Christ for three, the last three and a half years of his life. It says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When it says deceit, he's talking about no lie, no deception. So uh, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Christ was upright, honest, and true. And, there's, and not only that, the Father resurrected Christ, which is also to say that he approved four times uh, from heaven, a voice came. This is my son. In him I am well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him, and so forth. So, recognition from the Father. And who do we need to really get recognition from? Other people? No, we need to get recognition from God. He's the one who could tell us whether Christ's offering himself in our place was sufficient or not. So in Philippians chapter 2, we do see uh, this verse, Philippians 2, and I'll read it for us, and we'll, we'll just look at uh, verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. In other words, it was successful what Christ did in his submission, coming a man, right? He exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, acceptable. And then, the, the one that you are very familiar with, 1 John 2, 2. Right? It says, He, Christ, is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, the satisfaction of the justice of God for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Christ's death on the cross. He was all the, the the sins of the whole world were imputed to him and judged. So we should know what goes on behind the scenes. You saw a man die on the cross, but God was doing a work that was a, it's it was spiritual in nature. Point C, let's move on. Conversely, our experience with Adam's fallen nature is the source of temptation for us. So we have to be careful. It's like Christ said in Romans 8, I am from above and you are from below. He's talking to those Pharisees. But in Romans, just note, Jesus did not sin. He did not have any guile or deceit in his mouth. 
So Romans 6, verses 6 through 12. Let me read it quickly. So, for you know that our old self was crucified. So yeah, the old man, we're not in the old man any longer. It was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's what God did for us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We should know we don't have any obligation toward the sin nature. We literally are free from sin, the sin nature. Now, if we died with Christ, we, we did. We believe that we will also live with him. That is, like he said in verse 3, uh, where he says, or actually it's 4, that we, would, we too may live a new life. It's, that's why we died, so that we could live. We didn't die just to be dead. We, God put death upon us, and identifying us with the person of Christ, so that we might live. So, where are we at here? So we might live with him. For Verse 9. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. So it's a final thing that God did. Death no longer has mastery over him. It is over for us as well. Death does not have mastery over us. So for point ten, verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. That's enduring. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Therefore do not let sin. Notice sin will try you. The sin nature will try you. Don't let sin. Reign. Or rule like it did before. Right now of course you don't have. You won't have the same relationship. And you can let it. Or not let it. You have the will now. You are, you are free. But because of our past experience and our ignorance and our willful ignorance and disobedience, we can allow sin to reign in our mortal body so that we will obey its evil desires. So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life, from death to life. This, so we need to re um, reorganize the way we think about sin because there have been some changes that God made in us through the baptism of the Spirit. So, last point. Continue to be humble on the battlefield. Allow the Spirit of Truth to lead and guide us. That's what I would say. And some warnings here. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. 1 Corinthians 10 and 12. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. So look, we talked about confessing our sins and making sure we were in fellowship and how to do it and how to walk in the light as our motivation that, that purifies us from all sin. We talked about that earlier. But be careful. Uh, don't think... You know, you, you got it all. I would say take a humble approach. So be careful that you allow yourself to continue to be led by the Spirit. Let Him lead and guide us. So God, if we didn't need it, we could say, okay, God, we don't need you anymore. I got it from here. Then we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. But that's not true. So I don't know who would say that. No one. So let's just 
keep a humble attitude. Then James 4, and we'll end with this, this our last verse. James 4, 14 through 17. Let's look at that as we close. James says, Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. So we, we cannot predict what's going to happen. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James, that puts things in perspective. And I, when we talk about we're only here for a short time, what James is basically saying, that is exactly true. We're only here a short time. Instead, you ought to say, James says in 15, if the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will, that's what we will, that's how we will, we should be uh, preferencing what we say or at least think in our minds. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So we were going to have to end with this thought. I know we're probably over time. That's, but um, hopefully in this short verse, we could gain a little bit of understanding about uh, what Jesus had to go through. He was getting ready to go through some major battles. Satan was key instigator in all of this. He's the one who organized these attacks against Christ. Christ was ready for it because he knew the Father's plan and he had love for the Father as we will see next week. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We certainly appreciate your calling us from eternity past into the life that we now have. And wherever we find ourselves in the battle, whatever place, whatever uh, you have called us to be in the battle. Lord, we thank you for it. We appreciate it. And we're willing to serve in love. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, who blazed the trail for us, sacrificed his life for us. We pray that we will be worthy of the calling that we have received. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.